Hey, if you like me, love the Rust programming language, or you're just curious about how powerful this language actually is, let me tell you about RustConf on September 14. It's 100% online. There will be talks about language internals, the Rust compiler, programming optimization strategies, and to make it even more relevant to you, there will be talks about computer vision and other core machine learning algorithms in Rust. Register now on rustconf.com. You will find the link in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the usual office of uh, Amethyx Technologies in uh, Belgium. Today, I am the guest. <laughs> well, it happens sometimes. And uh, in fact, a few weeks ago, I was a guest on um, a very interesting podcast. The podcast goes under the name of AI Today Podcast. Um, which is uh, run by Kathleen Walsh and uh, Ronald Schmelzer. The podcast is a very interesting one, to be honest with you, for those who are wanting a no-hype, practical, real-world insight into what enterprises, public sector agencies, thought leaders, leading technology companies and experts are doing with AI today. And apparently I was the expert invited on that show a few weeks ago and i wanted to share that episode with my community but of course don't hesitate to go to the original show ai today podcast and i will uh, report the link in the show notes of this episode on datasensetom.com here is the show have fun hello and welcome to the ai today podcast i'm your host kathleen walch and I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. And on today's podcast, we have a bit of a special for you. Uh, as you know, we've been uh, interacting with many other podcasts uh, that are covering the topic of AI and everybody that, you know, that's been doing podcasts on AI now for many years. I know we've been doing our podcast for the past four years now, over 200 episodes. And even though people have been talking about AI for many, many years, there's still so many different perspectives and interesting perspectives on AI. And on this podcast, we're going to be interviewing a host, a person who's running the podcast uh, at Data Science at Home podcast, Francesco Galaletta. And he will be sharing with us some really interesting insights about what he's been covering and some of the things he's been seeing. Because, you know, sometimes we get different guests, we have different coverage areas, different perspectives and focuses, and, and all that uh, really great stuff. And for those of our listeners who might be new to our podcast, perhaps you're coming from Data Science at Home and you're, you're tuning in to the first time, um, the AI Today podcast, we focus on what's actually happening with AI Today. There you go. <laughs> That's the name of our <laughs> podcast, you know, keeping it simple. And uh, we always interview uh, both uh, private sector companies, usually Fortune 1000 companies, large companies and small companies, as well as public sector agencies, government agencies at the U.S. federal, state and local level, as well as international governments to hear what they're doing and, and see what's causing uh, issues and challenges, as well as some of the opportunities and some of the cool things that they're doing. And we also cover our market research and intelligence at Cognolytica. We're an analyst firm. We cover a lot of the markets, uh, you know, thousands of the vendors that are in this space. We see some of the trends that are happening. 
Um, and of course, some of the other things that we spend a lot of time on methodology, which is we're starting you know, we're at this point now with AI, we've been doing it now for many years. So that means people are doing it right. People are doing it not so right. And so we will talk about that quite a bit, but enough about that. I just really thrilled to have here uh, at our AI Today podcast, our guest, Francesco Galaletta, who, as I mentioned, is the host of the Data Science at Home podcast. And um, but first, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you, Ron. Thank you, Kathleen. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you as well. We'd like to start by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background, your podcast, and why you started your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I, I still find it very weird to be a guest today. <laughs> that usually, I'm used to be the host, but it's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll try to manage that. Uh, so, well, yeah, my uh, my background is in computer engineering, um, uh, specialization in artificial intelligence and robotics. Uh, I have a PhD in computer science, and uh, I essentially started my career as a uh, as a researcher. Um, I was working on problems in uh, bioinformatics, where uh, there was back in the days and still uh, the real big uh, big data, right? Um, then I moved to the corporate world. Um, I joined um, a big pharma, and uh, I stayed there for a couple of years, um, leading the deep learning unit. And uh, well, two years, I would say that they were quite enough to realize that I had to build my own uh, company and and become a technology provider for uh, for clients out there. Uh, so that's exactly what I did. Um, um, in terms of the podcast, well, podcast uh, kind of has a story on its own. Um, I started it sometime like three years ago or a bit more. Uh, probably the first few months, I, I should not count them in because uh, it was really an experiment. Um, and uh, the idea of the podcast was to kind of force myself to summarize papers, academic papers, and uh, relatively complex uh, concept in AI and machine learning, and uh, make it accessible to technical and non-technical people who would have definitely, uh, you know, skipped reading the academic paper because <laughs> sometimes that's not really very accessible material. Um, so I started as an experiment for myself, um, and it stayed so uh, like an experiment for like three years, um, and uh, then it became something that is bigger and bigger. Uh, to be honest with you, unexpectedly. Um, so I noticed that people loved listening during their commute. Um, you know, when we were allowed it to commute, um, and then with COVID time. Um, there was some kind of serendipity, probably because of the name uh, Data Science at Home, and the at home has become the, the, the you know, super trendy uh, pair <laughs> last year and this year as well. Um, and so I got to, uh, you know, a much bigger audience, uh, relatively large number of episodes. So, you know, it became something that uh, really kept me busy for uh, a good chunk of the day. Yeah, I think that that's great. I mean, we we've, we've seen a lot of the same thing in terms of people really tuning into podcasts. You know, maybe because their work hours aren't exactly the same, or maybe they just saved so much time not having to commute. They're like, "What am I going to do?" <laughs> yeah, I, let's listen to a podcast. Great idea. Um, but also, I think I think you know the world is changing, and uh, you know these podcasts help 
connect people to the greater world. You know, that's happening. And I know that one of the things you do on the Data Science at Home podcast is you talk about some of the data and data science trends. And, you know, we haven't really focused too much on data and data science trends in general on our podcast. So that's part of the reason we're so excited to have you here. So maybe you could share with us, you know, across all the episodes, maybe some of the interesting guests you've had. You know, what are you seeing as some of the biggest trends emerging in data and data science? Uh, so yeah, as you said, uh, as you said, podcasts uh, indeed have the uh, the good benefit of uh, making community. We also have a community on a Discord, so we have an official Discord channel where uh, people usually hang out and we start discussing about trends in machine learning and data science, and uh, and that's probably where most of my intuition, you know, come from by observing what the community is saying and also what my some of my clients are saying uh, in the in the field. Um, to to answer your question, what are the trends? That's a that's a really tough one because it depends really where uh, we are looking at, uh, like which sector, like fintech, healthcare, uh, social media, energy. You know, these sectors do not really behave the same way regardless the common ground of you know being data companies um and they uh, not only have different requirements but also have uh, different constraints and and flexibility when it comes to data and uh, and data management but with this said uh, i think that the probably the number one um you know emerging but not not so not so much emerging quite uh, you know in the sense that it's something that it's already there uh, for the last 10 years. It's reinforcement learning. Um, and that's a trend that is now becoming, uh, you know, more and more on the hype, um, though hype is not really um, always good. Um, due to the fact that DeepMind and uh, many other researchers out there have shown how a, a relatively weak estimator and reinforcement learning, learning techniques uh, not only do better than, for example, deep learning alone, but seem to be more powerful in terms of, let's say, the the entity of the problems they can solve. Um, and of course, you know, AGI is the ultimate goal of these methodologies. Still, very far from there. But reinforcement learning seems to have, uh, let me put it like, there's better chances chances with respect to deep learning alone. Um, the second trend is definitely something that I really have zero doubt about is ML ops. Um, I even made a podcast about, you know, MLOps is probably more important than ML. It was kind of, you know, um, I wanted to be a bit of, uh, uh, you know, pushing too, too far, <laughs> playing with words, ML and MLOps, say that MLOps was kind of more important than ML alone. And this is kind of from a more practical perspective, you know, we are at another cusp when it comes to making machine learning models production ready. And, and this is something that we have been focusing on um, at my company, Amethyx, uh, recently. Uh, we have seen an even larger gap between data scientists and DevOps or backend engineers in organizations, regardless of their size. And the process of putting machine learning models in production is still uh, quite clunky and quite slow. Uh, with a lot of moving parts, moving pieces. So regardless of the plethora of tools that are out there, that is, you know, actually making it worse as it increases fragmentation and, and makes it even harder to pick the right tool for the right use case. Um, so I feel that uh, best practices uh, in when it comes to MLOps are still missing. Um, uh, another big, big trend is about uh, privacy. 
um, and in particular, privacy-preserving machine learning. Uh, that's what I've been um, uh, busy for the last uh, probably three years. Um, this is something, you know, I've also been speaking quite extensively on my show. Uh, how can we train machine learning models on data that we are not supposed to see, right? So that's what you, privacy preserving machine learning tries to solve. And so we have the usual suspects there. We have federated learning. We have multi-party computation. We have homomorphic encryption that actually allow you to, you know, do exactly that, compute on data that you cannot uh, get access to or you cannot see. And uh, there are a lot of issues <laughs> still. The technology is not ready. Um, for example, protocols when it comes to federated learning are very complex. Uh, when it comes to a multi-party computation, it's um, you know extremely slow. And in many other cases, uh, using homomorphic encryption on large data, uh, it's, it can be prohibitive uh, to say the least. And um, uh, you know, so we we are seeing that when it comes to um, uh, how can I say realistic use uh, use cases and scenarios uh, like pharma or healthcare and finance, where usually data are not only sensitive but also you know big data, uh, these technologies and these methodologies are still not ready. Um, and this is something that, in my opinion, researchers are really pushing us. So we're gonna see something crazy in the next few years. Um, to conclude my observation on privacy, I would say, though, that privacy is a, is a big beast, is a monster, is a regulatory problem. It's not only a technological one. So we can claim that we have all the technology we need, for example, encryption, which is stuff that we know since decades now. But if nobody regulates the fact that you know, one can start selling data to third parties, violating people's privacy, I'm not really sure that technology can help there. Yeah, that was a great answer with a lot of a lot of different parts and, and areas that you're seeing. In particular with MLOps, it's interesting, you know, that that you brought that up. We have been following that market for quite some time. And our our listeners at the AI Today podcast know that we've had some podcasts on it as well and reports. Um, and it's interesting that you brought up, you know, best practices. Also, there's been some major news with, you know, recent acquisitions. Most recently, Algorithmia was acquired by DataRobot. So, you know, big, big news happening in that ML ops space. But it's interesting because you brought up, you said, you know, best practices in ML ops is still missing. And we continue to push best practices, methodologies in particular, and how important it is for folks to be following that. Uh, you know, at Cognolytica, we always say, uh, you know, please pay attention to meth methodologies, the best practices methodologies, including CPMAI um, in particular, which is the one that we advocate for. But, you know, folks are just not... Um, adopting them like they should and then get far along in their project and realize, you know, it's all about the data and they didn't have the data or it's not in a usable state. And why did you start your project? <laughs> <laughs> and it's sad and true that too many companies are doing this. Yeah, you're, you're very right. And the, the fact that uh, there are a lot of tools out there, uh, as I said, this is creating, this is actually uh, a problem rather than a solution in the sense that uh, many people, especially those who are not really familiar with the best practices, believe that a tool will solve their problem. Uh, and you know, the fact that there are the tools out there, these tools are available. Many of these are open source and uh, they can be used overnight. Uh, and still they don't solve these problems is because indeed what they are missing is not a tool, but is uh, how, you know, the, the, the rationality and the knowledge to choose the right tool for the right case. 
Exactly. So, um, you know, kind of segueing into my next question, which has to do with data, because, you know, enterprises have always had data, but the rate and that and the speed at which data is growing has just been tremendous. So how are enterprises and organizations changing the way they deal with data or are they failing in that regard? That's a good point. I mean, uh, uh, it depends where where we are looking at as well at this time in 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 terms of time uh, because a lot has happened in the last decade um, and the decade is pretty much nothing for traditional enterprises but it, when it comes to data or big data enterprises ten years uh, can be eternity um, so what I've seen is that uh, some enterprises especially the ones that are kind of driving technology around the world. Um, have been following trends and uh, uh, kind of the most fashionable technology, in particular deep learning, around which there has been a lot of hype, in my opinion. Uh, and I also discussed this a number of times in uh, on my show. And that has created even more confusion and even more fragmentation than it was necessary. Uh, my biggest concern is that orgs uh, still believe that uh, their use cases are very specific and unique, uh, when in fact, in my opinion, that's not 100% true. Um, there is a lot of common ground with other sectors. And, you know, data companies have a lot to share um, among, the, among each other, regardless of the sectors uh, where they belong. Um, and, and again, best practices are missing. We have a lot of tools, we have a lot of technologies to solve so, uh, uh, to, to solve so many problems, but there is very little material about when to use what and why. Um, so in two words, best practices. That's what I believe uh, organizations and enterprises are, uh, are, are falling apart. Hey, it might be beach weather outside, but for retailers, the holiday season has already begun. Did you know that 2021 holiday e-commerce sales are expected to exceed 2020 benchmarks? Are you prepared to capture every customer revenue opportunity? With Quantum Metric, you can be. Their unique approach to the digital customer experience helps today's top retailers and e-commerce brands quickly identify and prioritize the big and small revenue opportunities that keep customers engaged and coming back. Stay off the naughty list this holiday season by reducing customer friction, increasing conversions, and personalizing the shopping experience. Want a sneak peek? Visit their website at quantummetric.com slash podoffer and see if you qualify to receive their 12 days of insight offer with code DATASCIENCE. This offer gives you 12-day access to the platform coupled with a bespoke insight report that will help you identify where customers are struggling or engaging in your digital product. You will find the link in the show notes of this episode at datasciencetome.com. Yeah, I mean, that is, we are all, you know, playing from the same <laughs> instrument here, the drum. It's kind of funny because we're, you know, we're, we're both researchers, we're podcasters. We, you know, we also, we're market analysts and we take a look at the market, you know, and, and, you know, for us, this is just so obvious. I mean, this is just so incredibly <laughs> obvious because we see these, we're not, you know, we're not invested in this one organization or even a part of an organization's project. They're all in the weeds, right? You know, we've interviewed Fortune, not even Fortune 1000, Fortune like 100, Fortune 10, like the 10 you know, <laughs> the largest companies. They're like, 
well, I don't know if we need methodology. We just kind of like put together something. And I'm like, one, how are you going to hire anybody to bring into your team if you don't have any sort of standard best practice? Two, you don't have a best practice, which means that every project is just going to you know, build on its own experience. No one's learning anything. There's no institutional memory. And three, why are you even trying to figure this out yourself the hard way anyways? Don't you want to learn from others who have also done it the hard way and who have learned like, okay, yes, yes, yes. I know building models is fun and sexy, but you know what? 80% of our time is on data cleansing. And did you know that you can even save time in data cleansing when you figure out what data you need? It's like, oh my God, for me to you know go through petabytes of data is going to take me forever. It's like, well, who says you even need petabytes of data? You get that answered in question two. By the way, it's in phase two of a methodology. And that's, wait a second, that's phase two. So that means even in phase one, you have to figure out, well, what problem are you solving anyways? And do you even need that particular approach? When you push people to it, they're like, none of this stuff is really rocket science. This is all so incredibly obvious. And then we're saying, yes, so why aren't you doing it? It's a mystery, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, that's exactly what I tell my clients almost all the time, uh, especially when it comes to data volumes. Uh, there is still the you know general belief that more data is better. Um, that is clearly not the case. I mean, a lot of statisticians have been telling us since decades that's not the case. Uh, more data means more confounding factors from a statistical perspective. More data means uh, more work to for cleansing, as you said. Uh, more data means that uh, you might have a statistical drift very easily um, because you might be involving data that are probably not really related to your uh, to your business. More data means spurious correlations. I mean, we have been telling this for years already. <laughs> Still, there is not a really uh, amazing grasp around these concepts, which is quite weird. I, I, I agree with you, Ron. Yeah, well, I think I think it's also part of of just the industry's maturing, and I and I think I think it's okay that we are we are here at this point, but we are at this point, you know. And and I do want to put a, a little plug here. You know, we do spend time on methodology and Cognolytica for our private and public sector clients. We offer certification and training on the CPMAI methodology, which is itself based on CRISPDM, which is over 20 years old. It's a well-established methodology. It just hadn't really evolved at the times. And it's not really CRISPDM. It's not specific to the needs of AI and machine learning. And you know, over the past you know, decade or so, we've learned from the good projects that have things like AI go, no-go analyses, that have the seven patterns analysis, that do uh, understand at phase one what you need from a model evaluation perspective, and all the various different aspects of the data that you need to know, and the considerations you need to know. All of that's involved in, uh, you can easily learn these things in a very short amount of time. Uh, our training is about like 20 hours of, of self-paced online with, with uh, uh, exercises and all that. There's really no excuse at this point. It's very inexpensive. It's under 3K <laughs> to basically go through all that. You don't have to go to college. I can tell you it's a lot, lot cheaper than that. And you certainly don't have to learn the hard way by spending $2 million on a project and failing. So it, it is definitely... Um, 
like an obvious thing. There's, there may be other certificate. We're not trying to say this is the only one, but it is definitely a best practice methodology. If you're interested, go to courses, C-O-U-R-S-E-S dot Cognolytica, C-O-G-N-I-L-Y-T-I-C-A dot com. Uh, but enough of that plug. I think we've we've sort of made this point pretty clear to our both of our audiences here. And actually, actually, I don't know. Do you have something that you want to talk? Uh, do you do you do anything about methodology yourself, or or just you just recommend in general uh, for that? Yeah. So usually before starting a project with my clients, there is a, a period in which we definitely try to um, you know make them aware of the the issues before. Uh, I say getting our hands dirty with the coding and stuff, uh, but there is a lot of um, uh, indeed knowledge transfer in that sense. Uh, try you know let the client understand what are the uh, the methods that indeed they should be familiar with, and if they're not, of course, we provide consulting on uh, you know around these concepts. Well, great. Well, there's definitely a need for it. I can tell you. I think we both yeah for sure. So so thinking about some of these news and trends and topics and maybe some of the things that might be surprising, maybe some of the things you have heard from your guests or as you were going through, you mentioned the research that, that you've been taking a look at. You know, what's one thing that has surprised you in regards to data science and your coverage of data science trends, news and topics? Hmm. Uh, I have to be critical here because, uh, <laughs> as always, <laughs> well, my followers know how critical I am on the show, <laughs> but this is not my show. <laughs> now, to answer your question, I think that uh, there are three things that have kind of amazed me, but in a negative way. Uh, and these are hype, uh, marketing, and false claims. Um, and so, you know, in, in, in the last 10 years, I've heard people, for example, claiming that uh, autonomous vehicles were ready to replace our cars, and they were mentioning this already a decade ago. That radiologists were no longer needed because you know AI was making an excellent job uh, understanding that X-ray or MRI. Uh, that the combination of AI and blockchain could have solved all the problems of humanity uh, when it's actually destroying the environment, probably. Um, that artificial intelligence would have taken old jobs, remember when they said that, um, and, and should have actually been even taxed uh, like, uh, like regular workers, uh, you know, because if humans stop working, uh, who's going to contribute to the GDP of, of the world, right? <laughs> so I've heard a lot of these stories, and, and I'm sure that you guys heard, uh, have heard these stories too. And all these really surprised me uh, because... You know, I'm a scientist. I come from academia, uh, you know, back in the days. And, and when I studied AI at university, you know, usually it was people who understood the nitty gritty of linear algebra and calculus and probability and statistics who had a word, you know, around this concept. And, and we listened. Uh, and today it seems like everyone is an expert just because, you know, they find some deep learning model online. They hit the planet with the, the most powerful GPU that they can purchase on Amazon. And, uh, and, and, and usually these things were, were running video games and now they do deep learning. So I think that democratizing data science um, you know, has some consequences. It's one of the most beautiful things that this world could see, of course, but it has some consequences. And uh, you know, when you open the markets and you open knowledge to, to the world, uh, you also have to, you're subject to other dynamics. For example, the journalist who starts, you know, telling you or convincing you that 
a deep learning model is sentient and and is actually uh, you know has the same brain of a baby that can learn and become mature and adult or 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 go across sectors and learn new things from scratch. Uh, you know, so this is the type of um, uh, of unfortunately of, of things that I've been observing, and I tried to. Uh, slow that hype down a bit, uh, you know, in my small world and uh, with my uh, relatively tiny amount of followers I've, I've and, and the show as well, Data Science at Home, I try to always, you know, be sober about AI and machine learning. Yeah, I think, you know, we actually heard this exact same idea about the fact that the news about AI can mostly not be believed. And our last podcast swap with our friends from Let's Talk AI with Sharon Joe and Andre Karenkov, we were, they were saying that like, well, you could build a really easy classifier to say whether or not the news that you're hearing about AI is true or false, because it's basically usually false. So <laughs> <laughs> overstated, overhyped. And, um, you know, this is, I guess, just the side of the fact, side effect of the fact that people get all science fiction-y when they think about machines and intelligence. And they're like, even if you just put like, like a little sprinkle of like, oh, we can do a little bit of predictive analysis. It's like, you know, our brains get all fanciful and we're like, just think of all the things you can do. I do think, though, we, we agree with you. It's, it's good to be a healthy skeptic here. And um, and there are some serious downsides to this when you trust AI systems in areas of personal health and security and safety and you know <laughs> driving and and things like that. Um, you know, if you put too much confidence in this, uh, you know, news and point, of course, was that even without AI, when you put too much confidence in machines that have that just use algorithms. Um, the the humans tend to tend to start getting lax. You know, the, of course, the Boeing 737 Max uh, eight was you know is a great example of this, where they let the 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 plane make decisions, uh, the the system in the plane make decisions, and the pilots just could not react in time or, or did not have the the training necessary to react. And um, and you know that, that I think there's a lot of concern about just in general algorithmic decision making biases, dependencies, all that sort of stuff, and kind of how we can get ourselves into trouble there. Yeah, you are absolutely right. Yeah, so it's interesting. We're continuing to see that trend with people who are paying attention to the news, and you know we are are you know always sure to be skeptical as well because the last few waves of AI have gone into winters because people are over-promising and under-delivering on what AI can actually do. And that's the last thing that we want now. So everybody, you know, take that news and be a skeptic and dig deeper. Um, definitely with marketing spin and hype as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, creating these very high expectations, is it's going to fire back for sure. Exactly. So Francesco, this has been an incredible podcast and we always like to end our interviews with asking um, our guests the same question because we always get such varied results no matter how many times we ask. So I'm looking forward to hear what you have to say. As a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to organizations and beyond? <laughs> That's more philosophical or what? <laughs> We're going to let you take that however you want. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I think that um, the biggest bottleneck of, of artificial intelligence in organizations is uh, definitely represented by data and uh, and the management of workflows. Um, 
you know, I I really expect, and you know, this is no big news that data volumes are uh, doomed to increase in the next few years. Uh, workflows are doomed to become more complex, and so the problem that I see there is that if we don't tame such issues and master them, there will always be a gap to be filled. Uh, you know, because at some point you will have to face a volume of data that is prohibitive for you to calculate even the simplest function, even the most, the easiest linear regression is gonna be prohibitive, right? From a more general standpoint, um, we will definitely see artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, more and more deployed in the devices around us. And, you know, I'm not referring to the tasks, you know, that we, we are used to performing in our daily life you know, like, uh, you know, booking a, a, a flight or, or um, uh, choosing a recipe or, or, or matching our next date and stuff like that. But I'm talking about, you know, the toaster, the shoes that we wear, the clothes that we buy, um, the normal things, or I'm quoting normal, uh, will become more and more, let's say, smart, right? And, and I'm saying this now because even though I think that they saw, they said this uh, years ago, but the technology was not ready uh, back in the days. Um, as I said, I've always been very sober and very realistic when it comes to you know making claims about AI. So that's why uh, today, 2021, I feel comfortable in saying these things. Um, to conclude, uh, if, from a more ethical uh, aspect, uh, you know, touching a bit about ethics is another thing that we are um, discussing quite a lot these days, uh, due to the fact that there is this belief that artificial intelligence is, you know, kind of a brain without legs, right? Um, which is clearly not the case. So I sometimes find it awkward to speak about ethics uh, for a function approximator, <laughs> in fact, uh, because that's what it is, right? So deep learning is a function approximator. It's just a very complex function approximator, but that's what it is. Now, when it comes to um, um, ethics and, uh, and the fact that AI is critical and, and it will affect our lives, et cetera, et cetera, I want to say that it really depends where one deploys artificial intelligence. That, that's what makes it critical. So AI per se is not critical. Um, a function approximator cannot be critical or unethical. Uh, but if you place that smart algorithm as the rocket or the plane or the car controller or driver, uh, and you delegate pretty much everything to that component, well, then you are making that artificial intelligence critical. Right. So I think that we should start learning that distinction. And it's weird enough to say that uh, out there, there are people who who haven't grasped this yet. Yeah. Well, thank you for that answer. I, as I said, I always like to hear how guests interpret and respond to that. So, and again, thank you so much for, for joining us today. This was an incredible, incredible discussion. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was very nice and fun to be here. Yeah, I think this is really great insight. And as mentioned, uh, we have had we are have the pleasure of also being guests on Francesco's podcast. We really hope you have the opportunity to, to listen to that podcast, the Data Science at Home. We, as Kathleen mentioned, we're going to link to it uh, in the show notes, and we will 
we'll promote it. Honestly, we like we like uh, you know sharing our insights with others. We like others who share their insights with us. You know, this is a, a, a world we're all connected here, and we're all sort of sharing things. And it's kind of cool to see how many of the things that we're seeing and insights our, our other uh, podcast hosts and other folks in the market are seeing as well. So it's a very very validating, I would say. So so thank you again for for joining us. Thank you very much, Ron. Thanks, Kathleen. I, I hope to see you soon on the other show. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You've been listening to Data Science at Home podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.